This is an excerpt from a publication called The East Village Other. It's volume one, number 15th, July 1st to 15th, 1966, by Walter H. Boart, slightly edited and reshaped in 2005. I am putting this into an edition of Operation Mind Control, the special researcher's publication. Because of the decisions that we made when we published that, um, we left certain things out of it. We had intentions of have it being much longer than it is uh, when it was published because we only published about 500 copies of the second volume specifically. And they were very expensive at that time. So two of the things that were left out are critical for what is currently happening today. Some people may hear this when it comes out. Others may hear it in the future, uh, way down the road. I mean, some may not hear it at all. But it is relevant to exactly what is going on and what not the United States, but the entire world is facing right now with the legislation of consciousness and the almost full control and cognitive control over the public and thought as we prepare for the integration between thought and the central nervous system and the merger of man and machine. Uh, the word of the day that's been imprinted on the general public for that particular subject matter is the transhumanism term. So I'm going to read this verbatim as it was uh, designed to go into the publication. Um, it was left out specifically. We had other editions that we wanted to put in. We didn't want to make it too long. So this one we left out. Uh, and now I understand why we left it out because of what's happening today. This is all relevant for what is happening today because we're all facing uh, the end of uh, free speech at the end of free thought, and the end of potentially our own free will. <clears throat> so this is extremely important. On June 15th, 1966, Walter H. Boart, editor and publisher of the East Village Other, Eve Babbitts, writer, office manager, and slum goddess, and Paula Sherwood, school teacher and main squeeze of the publisher, testified before the United States Senate on June 15th, 1966. Walter Boert, editor and publisher of the East Village Other, Eve Babbitts, writer, office manager, and slum goddess, and Paula Sherwood, school teacher and main squeeze of the publisher, testified before the United States Senate Subcommittee on the Judiciary to investigate juvenile delinquency. Boert's testimony follows the article below. A first-person report on the D.C. trip, photo illustration by Walter Burdell, Boert's painting, Frog Mother, 10 feet by 12 feet, serves as the backdrop. Washington, D.C. The center of the vast military empire bristles with shiny brass and crew cuts. The tourists are ushered through the halls of Congress and ranks of two, like cattle or soldiers, like the Jews who waltzed into the concentration gas chambers to the strings of Strauss played by the world's best violinist. And they do not complain. The Senate elevator operators carry in their minds delusions of wonderful lives as junior executives. They too have short hair. It comes along with war. 
its military chic. It's a dry kind of pimple which comes to a head in Washington. The bland, bald, fear-filled, regimented herds of well-represented in the third-rate palace called the Capitol. Bob Dylan is not played on the radio here, but 70% of Afro-American population is circused with amphetamine, disc jockeys, and rhythm and blues. An airport is named after a CIA chief and his brother who, it is said, made millions selling guns to the Axis we were fighting against. There are roughly 600 elected officials in modern Acropolis, all except the few from the metropolitan complexes of the West and East are dirt farmers who have slept with their wives who scream. They're corrupting our daughters, they're letting the country go to pot. And the senators and representatives will vote for anything just to hear their crones shut up. And the young ones have to have crew cuts and the old ones have no hair at all. The sunset on June 15th was bright red-orange and the sky was cobalt blue and the air was fresh. It was the first time since the birth of the institution of Washington that the long hairs had a chance to bounce their words off the walls of Congress. There is a seed planted here, the seed of an old tree once again approaching its spring, dash such optimism. There are few folk hidden away in committee offices who are alive enough and fearless enough to help the truth be heard. But speaking is not the problem. How to speak around minds constipated from the womb by an attitude of righteousness, condemnation is the problem. For the first time since the Industrial Revolution, persons of love and long hair have been allowed to speak and present an argument of temperance and define themselves from the ideas of constriction set up 30 years ago and never successfully challenged. On June 14, 1966, Allen Ginsberg, bearded, lovely, articulate poet, spoke to the U.S. Senate Committee on the Judiciary Subcommittee to investigate juvenile delinquency about LSD. He told them that he had come there to tell them about his own experiences, that he was worried that without sufficient understanding and sympathy for personal experience, laws will be passed that are so rigid that they will come cause more harm than the new LSD than then that they would try to regulate. He told them, We are not machines and personal objective figures. We are subject person feeling. We are alive, and this aliveness that we know in ourselves is just that feeling of individual, unique, sensitive persons. And this nation was made to be an association of such persons, and our democracy was framed to be a social structure where maximum development of the individual person was to be encouraged. And the senators listened, Senator Dodd, Edward Kennedy, and Jacob Javits. And Javits said that he certainly respected Ginsburg, though he did not have a beard. And that evening, all the papers said that funny, bearded Allen Ginsburg spoke before the Senate committee, but that it wasn't too important seeing how the war in Vietnam was so interesting. June 15th, four people from New York City, three from the Lower East Side, had their chance at bridging the distance of time and age and conditioning. Larry Allen Beer, legal counsel to the Office of Narcotics Coordinator in New York, spoke first. He told the senators, this time Edward Kennedy and Quentin Burdock, that heroin was the problem, but LSD was not a problem according to what he could deduce from reports. He said that, unlike users of other drugs, 
those who take LSD are not only ashamed of themselves, but also feel that LSD may give them status. Following Mr. Beer's speech, Edward Kennedy questioned him strongly and played aggressor while barebacked, peddled, and aikidoid him around. Then it was our turn. My nose was running and I was high on contact, fighting off what I thought was a terrible summer cold, but turned out to be the first of many hay fever seizures. Eve Babbitt's East Village Others office manager and Paula Sherwood, my significant other, took their places beside me. I read my speech for 20 minutes trying to keep the mucus collecting in my nose from dripping on the page. I tried to explain to the senators that LSD was a manifestation of ecology that was being sought out by our youth as a remedy to the spiritual poverty which prevails in our outer directed society. I was advised not to use big words, but somehow I couldn't help it. And when the question period came, they asked me questions which I had already covered in my speech. What was the most unsettling was the entire room had a copy of my speech and the entire gallery turned the page in sync with me when I turned the page. Then Paula spoke. She told the senators, making criminals of otherwise law-abiding people does not solve any problems. Because of the highly personal and or religious nature of the experience, people are reluctant to speak. Their reluctance could develop into a highly personal indignation if prohibition came about. Paula told them, and hope to God they heard, the problem of control over psychedelic chemicals places more responsibility upon you as legislators than even legislation about the conquest of outer space because it will affect the most personal part of man, his mind. Paula deleted the last line of her testimony. It had read, quote, If there is an inquisition or prohibition, Romans, I'm afraid, you'll have the Christians on your hands. Then Eve, who the press called the redhead from Hollywood, spoke telling of us the successful people she knew of both in California and New York who took LSD. She said that she did not want to be made a criminal, that she had never even gotten a traffic ticket. She charmed the senators and once or twice made them break into smiles. One got the impression that laughter was forbidden in the Capitol in those days. And then the questions. How often do you take LSD? What do you gain from its use? How many people do you know who take it? How prevalent is it in Greenwich Village? Do you know anyone that has had a bad trip? How do you acquire LSD? How is it made? By whom? How much do you pay for it? And so on. We gave them straight answers. We didn't take it often. It's not that kind of thing. Thousands of people we knew took it. Yes, we do know people who've had bad trips, but even the bad trips can be rewarding. Who knows who makes it? The fact that it costs maybe $5 to buy, and so forth. Teddy Kennedy pressured me into stating that the medical profession should have control of LSD. The choice was between the MDs or the PDs. I couldn't understand who he meant by medical profession. I agreed that the responsible individual should control it. It controlled you is a must. Those with the most experience with it did not seem to me like they belonged to the medical profession. They treated panic reaction cases showing up in hospitals as if they'd been toxically poisoned.
Then he slipped the words, quote, federal research projects, and I knew what he was driving at. It reminded him that Dr. Humphrey Osmond's study comparing psychedelic states with hypnotic states and Dr. Timothy Leary's study how to change behavior and some other research projects had been discontinued. At the time, we hadn't the slightest inkling that both Osmond and Leary were assets of the Central Intelligence Agency. And I thought I heard Senator Kennedy say that, well, the Army was still experimenting with it. But we were only laymen. Senator Burdock reminded us, and then medicine men were professionals. And the hearing for the day blundered to a close. We kept the CBS TV cameras waiting and did not get their exclusive interview. That evening, David Brinkley closed his show off with, with an off-shoulder quip about the Greenwich Village types. He did not use the words beatniks. He told the senators to try LSD for themselves. The next day, it was on the tube, the beatniks, sounding like fools. And only Nan Robertson of the New York Times got it right. The sunset on June 15th was bright orange, and the sky was cobalt blue, and the air was fresh as we left Washington driving around the circle and from Union Station. Three Afro-American children swam and splashed in the water of a fountain beneath the blinding marble statue of Christopher Columbus, the discoverer of a new world which he had long ago turned to stone. Cristobal Colon thought he had discovered India. That's why he called the Aboriginal people he met Indians, which they are still called today more than 500 years after all of Europe had discovered his error. Just one more brick of ignorance in the wall of evidence for the stupid white folk theory. Once they make a mistake, they stick with it. Gotta give it to them for persistence. Not much has changed since 1966, except there are more people in prison for the possession of controlled substances. As Dr. Humphrey Osmond of the New York Jersey Neuropsychiatric Research Institute told me before I went to Washington, this subcommittee is going to decide which government agency is going to control our consciousness. In the Q&A that followed the testimonies, I tried to warn the senators about creating a new criminal class and engaging in an unwinnable war on drugs like the war on alcohol which had given us the mafia. Judging from that history lesson, the students were, apparently, daydreaming. Now this is the important addition uh, and one of the key career points in Walter Broward's life and he told me about it personally many many times in detail and he talked about it with me on his uh, deathbed literally a couple of days before he passed and he gave me an excerpt of the speech and said someday uh, you should read that because it's going to affect your life in some form. So this was uh, Walter Bowert's Sermon to the Senate is what it's titled on this typed page. The following is a corrected transcript of Walter Bowert's testimony before the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, hearing testimony on the Pending Narcotics Rehabilitation Act of 1966. 
As publisher of a newspaper, the East Village Other, devoted to youth and the artists and internal youth, I have become aware of an impressive transformation in the myth that directs our country. In the age of mass media inundation, our adolescents are generally more informed than their parents, yet they're allowed to assume no more responsibility than before. Their frustration is founded in the direct experience via Telstar of being part of the whole world, yet they must sit discontentedly by, taking no part in the making of it, while they are offered a non-participatory education. In frustration, our youth are reaching out. They're exploring the world and trying to find a situation in which they can participate. They're trying all kinds of things, including marijuana and LSD. The problem of understanding LSD becomes urgent when one realizes that by 1970, 61% of our population will be younger than 15 years of age. That's a lot of curiosity, idealism, and frustration to deal with. Something has to give. And I'd venture to guess, as always, it will be the older generation's way of looking at life. Let me explain it in another way. It is quite possible that while reaching a height of material wealth never before attained by any country in the world, America has neglected its spiritual values and fallen into moral bankruptcy and spiritual poverty. The cover of April's Time magazine asked a big red letters, Is God Dead? Has such a question ever been posed so publicly before? The Time article read, quote, Nearly one of every two men on earth lives in thraldom to a brand of totalitarianism that condemns religion as the opiate of the masses, which has stirred some to heroic defenses of their faith, but has also driven millions from any sense of God's own existence. End quote. Time seemed to overlook a brand of totalitarianism via technocratic devices which is encroaching on our American dream. It is not conscious nor directed, but as we spend billions of dollars going into outer space, to the bottom of the seas, career directing our youth towards specialization, waging wars with vague ideas, we are participating in and building an outer directed culture. Through our technology and social organization, we have built a civilization of unprecedented wealth and grandeur. Yet despite this mastery of environment, we had given little thought to the mastery of ourselves. In fact, our newly acquired wealth and leisure has heightened our sensuality and weakened our self-discipline. It becomes increasingly apparent that a stable and prosperous democracy can endure only so long as we have intelligent, self-disciplined, and properly motivated citizens. Legislation and education alone will not ensure this. Yeats said it. McLuhan is saying it. Toynbee has observed it. When a culture reaches a point of extreme objective concentration or outer directedness, something happens and the culture begins to turn indirect, inward, towards subjective concentration. I believe this overwhelmingly curiosity about LSD is a direct manifestation of this own inward search. There are three ways this inner directed basically moral and spiritual quest can manifest itself culturally, by mass movements either politically, socially, or morally orientated. Recently we have had two social movements making moral demands the Civil Rights Movement, and the Student Pacifist Movement. Both, I believe, are founded on moral rather than political or social values. 
Seven years ago, when I was in college, a great number of my peers were trying to find themselves by studying Zen Buddhism and trying to practice Zazen. Meditation can be difficult in our noisy culture. Since that time, a wide interest in Oriental philosophies, Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and even occult sciences has taken root. It is not surprising that intellectually stimulated people should try psychedelic chemicals as a natural outgrowth of their spiritual hunger. Psychedelic substance, whether LSD, mescaline, psilocybin, peyote, hage, tryptamines, morning glory seeds, or any number of others, are changing our culture not only directly but indirectly. Some examples of indirect influence of psychedelic drugs are kinetics and the light-sounded motion media now becoming popular in discotheques. In New York, a group called the USCO is showing a new brand of psychedelic multimedia art at the Riverside Museum. Op art, kinetic sculpture, and some other entirely new concepts in writing and painting are emerging out of the artistic subculture which is very familiar with the psychedelic experience. The problem as I see it is not one of how to make hasty anti-psychedelic legislation, but how to direct its use towards socially beneficial, spiritual, uplifting goals. LSD is only a catalyst, neither good nor bad in itself. A study on the psychotic or panic reaction to LSD was done by Dr. Sidney Cohen and was printed in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases in 1960. In that report, Dr. Cohen questioned 5,000 people, half of whom were normal and the other half of whom were under analysis. They took LSD a total of 25,000 times in a responsible, controlled setting. In his graph, Dr. Cohen made note of three, three reactions, attempted suicide, successful suicide, and psychotic reactions lasting more than 48 hours. He found that no normal people attempted or completed suicide, while well, 1.2 per thousand of the people under analysis attempted suicide and 0 0.04 completed it. 0 0.08 per thousand normal people had psychotic reactions which lasted over 48 hours, while 1.8 per thousand of the people in analysis had psychotic reactions lasting more than 48 hours. These statistics would seem to indicate that psychedelic chemicals administered in the proper setting are not inordinately dangerous. More studies of this kind should be done. There are four groups primarily interested in psychedelic substances. The scientific, the religious, the artistic, and a group Dr. Cohen called the Cubehead Revolutionaries. He described this fourth group as those who take LSD in casual, frivolous, and uncontrolled circumstances. On May 17th, before the University of Southern California Medical Student Forum, Dr. Cohen said, The third phase of the LSD story is upon us. For every person who takes LSD for some scientific purposes, there may be a few hundred who take it, let us say, for serious, semi-religious, exploratory purposes. But for every few hundred of these, there may be a few thousand who are taking LSD for casual, frivolous reasons. Life magazine said that more than a million doses of LSD were ingested last year. That million doses has created snowball of interest, be direct experience and gossip, and be a half-informed and sensational press. This means 
that in spite of anything that anybody does, more people than ever will try psychedelic chemicals and some of them will seek help from our hospitals because they were not properly prepared for it. Our medical profession has shown a tremendous lack of understanding of the panic reaction in the psychedelic state. They have often most treated the cases showing up in our hospitals as toxic poison cases rather than as people in a disoriented psychological condition. And no wonder the medical professions is the least likely to understand. Their approach is empirical and is the objective approach which has shed the least amount of light on the nature of these chemicals. You can't watch what is happening inside someone else's head. Our first step toward preventing irreparable damage to our latently disturbed population is to inform our hospitals and medical men and law enforcement officers how to treat disturbed individuals. A most important requirement would be that anyone handling treatment over psychedelic panic in hospitals must have taken one of the substances themselves. Today, the organized religions seem to be offering seedingly less to the intellectual curious, yet it is in the area of religion that LSD has promised most. Reverend Dr. Walter Kring presented a sermon before the Unitarian Church of All Souls in New York City, stating that a left LSD could be used in any church to reinstate religion's lost dimension of awe. He said, quote, The encounter with the holy has been fast disappearing among us. Perhaps the emphasis will be resurrected by research into drugs. Religion cannot be equated with religious experience, but neither can it long survive its absence. The Native American church, which is, has members in all 50 states, and even all race branch, has been using psychedelic substances in their ceremonies for many years. How do they control it? By making it a ritual and treating it as sacred. The Indian ceremonies are highly controlled by ritual, so that the guide or roadman, as he is called in the Native American church, knows exactly what to do and does so without deviation. It has taken the Aboriginal Americans thousands of sessions over many, many years to understand and formalize the ceremony. Much of their ritual was inherited from the ancient Mayan culture. I was fortunate enough to partake of this psychedelic host in the Indian way. And that reason, I found that everything in the ritual had a definite purpose. The fire, the way people were seated around it, the idea of the four winds, the chants, the roadman, and the earth mother, all of these directed the concentration of the participants in the ceremony toward contemplation. The blankets are designed and colored to make a kind of sense during the psychedelic session and are used to keep warm and provide security during the running of the road, as the peyote ceremony is called. Great importance is given to the selection of the blankets, its color, and even one's feeling about the design. This ritual, it seems to me, performs a definite directioning of the individual's concentration, successfully guarding against the causes of most disturbances, disorientation, and anxiety. The psychiatric profession in general, it would seem, has not used psychedelic substances as the tool they could be. Many seem to be still looking at the subconscious from the outside as somebody else's, and have no thought of looking into their own. Few have had the courage to try psychedelic substance on themselves to see what effect it has on their understanding of mental illness, for example. Where such courage has been exhibited in the psychiatric profession, it has resulted in a new outlook on mental illness such as schizophrenia. Who are the authorities on LSD? 
It would seem to me that Dr. Sidney Cohen, Dr. Timothy Leary, Dr. Humphrey Osman are some of today's Magellans of inner space. Any of them might be likened to Robert Goddard, who was experimenting about 1950 with rockets in his backyard. During his lifetime, the government didn't understand just what it was going to do, and so offered him little encouragement. But in 1960, the U.S. government made a million-dollar settlement on his estate for patent infringements, and now there's a space research center bearing his name. I hope that this groups or individuals with experience with the psychedelic substances will be encouraged to experiment more and be called upon to set up programs of education in both scientific and religious areas. I would like to see the way left open these chemicals or foods to be available to any and all religious groups who might ask for them to be incorporated in their existing rituals. There should be mounted a well-directed campaign of public education in our universities and possibly even in our high schools, warning of the dangers of abuse and offering through films and lectures some kind of idea of what the psychedelic experience is. In all humanity, I would like to submit that, before any action is decided upon, a representative from this committee, voluntarily and under proper conditions, should have an LSD session and report back to the committee.